At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. got some summer storms brewing on Georgia's political radar, an indictment for the state's insurance commissioner, a potential landmark fight over the new abortion law, and Democrats and Republicans are trying to figure out how to navigate all the 2020 turbulence and uncertainty. But we are ready to fortify you with a nourishing political breakfast. Thanks for spending some time with us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Our regulars are back. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff to former governor Nathan Deal. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist, public affairs and government consultant, and former National Southern Regional Director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Hey there to both of you. Happy Friday. It is good to be back, Dennis. Let's start with the storm surrounding the state insurance commissioner's office. That storm continuing as we speak. Insurance commissioner Jim Beck faces a 38-count federal indictment, which accuses him of running what amounts to, if the U.S. attorney's charges are true, a very sophisticated fraud scheme while he was running the Georgia Underwriting Association. It gets kind of technical, but basically the idea was the U.S. attorney alleges he was setting up shell companies through friends to basically bill the association for which he was working and sending the money to him, in effect, stealing from his own workplace. This has involved Governor Kemp now. It has involved the Georgia Republican Party. And one of the entities that was named in the indictment, not charged, but certainly named as an entity that that, uh, the commissioner controls was the Georgia Christian Coalition. So this has a lot of waves beyond the technicalities of the indictment. This is an embarrassment to our state. And as you recall, the campaign for insurance commissioner on both sides, the Democratic primary and the Republican primary, was all about eliminating fraud, Mm -hmm. basically putting in procedures and laws and policy to eliminate what this insurance commissioner is alleged of doing. Now, let's get a little partisan here because I'm back and I'm fired up this week, is that this is very bad for the Republican Party in Georgia because what this implies is that now you have a constitutional officer who has been served with 30-plus indictments, almost 40 last time I counted, and it puts the governor of this state of Georgia in a very, very interesting position because he now has got to own this. This is a Republican who has a statewide office who clearly is alleged of committing fraud, the very thing that his office was supposed to put policies in place to prevent from happening. The connection with the Christian coalition is also damaging because for a long time, Republicans always used to talk about organizations that Dr. Lowry and Tyrone Brooks and others who uh, was really there to educate voters and to turn out you know, voters and didn't necessarily tell them to vote Democratic, but really wanted them to be educated. And so we've seen for decades that these organizations on the Democratic side uh, have been discriticized. And the last thing I want to say, this is not something that the governor really wants to be dealing with right now. 
at a time where we see that he's postponed the trip to California uh, to really highlight the booming Hollywood industry that we have here with filming at a time where he signed a heartbeat bill. And so now you got to basically go through a constitutional officer, which, by the way, Dennis, what I'm hearing from a lot of my Republican friends, and I don't know if Brian has heard this, is that they knew that there was an ongoing investigation while this gentleman was running and that the people were told, don't be seen taking a picture with this guy because it's highly likely that he may not be able to fulfill his term as insurance commissioner. And, Brian, before you start, we should note here, it's very important, Beck insists he is innocent and yeah. he's going to mount a vigorous court defense. So these yeah. are allegations at this point. Theron is right. People in Republican circles were discussing the allegations and rumors surrounding Beck back in 2018. In fact, I can tell you, I told my family who don't know these candidates and these down-ballot races that they should not vote for him because there were numerous fraud allegations against this guy, and that was fairly well known. And what it brings me to is the danger of down-ballot races that I don't think people should be voting on. There's no way that we can have enough information on crowded fields in these offices. And the insurance commissioner is something none of us ever think about. But let me tell you, it is very important. It's and a very, very powerful. powerful position. If you recall, former insurance commissioner John Oxendine ran against a deal in the primary in 2010. And he out-fundraised everybody because he had so much leverage over these insurance companies that, that gave him big donations. So I would like to see that become an appointed position. We're one of very few states that has an elected insurance commissioner. People don't have the time to find out who's got the best credentials to regulate the insurance industry in Georgia. Listen, I believe in not in rushing to judgment, but if it is true, this is something I think is going to give Democrats an opportunity to run a person for the seat in the next constitutional uh, elections in 2022 and really have a viable chance of kind of hanging this around the Republicans' neck and saying, hey, we need someone to go in there and clean up the insurance commissioner's office. The problem is that the person that the Democrat runs against for the Democrats is that it's not going to be Jim Beck. And (laughs) and so that person has got a, a couple of years now to make a name for themselves, be proven trustworthy and honest and a good administrator of that department. So the question becomes, at the Georgia Republican Convention in Savannah on Saturday, does this impact David Schaefer's candidacy to be chairman? He was on the board of this association when Beck was allegedly stealing this this money. So does this stick to him? Is there not enough time? Do people believe that he is attached to it? He says that the U.S. Attorney's Office calls the association a victim. Therefore, he is a victim, not a perpetrator or uh, an accomplice in fraud. Does this stick in? It doesn't make a difference in the state chairman's race because I talked to people in Schaefer's circle in the last couple of weeks, and they thought before this happened that they would win on the first ballot in Savannah. And now this may cause uh, that to get a little tougher, a tougher road. And you've got Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who has got pretty good approval with the GOP mm-hmm. base. They really like him. And who ran against And who Schaefer ran against Schaefer for LG last and year. And beat him. And beat him by a hair. And uh, the LG's office, including most notably the chief of staff, Chip Lake, one of my dear friends, is going after Schaefer, attaching him to this scandal, saying, why were you letting this happen while you're on the board? Beck contributed $6,600, according to reports, to Schaefer's campaign for a lieutenant governor. So presumably, Mr. Schaefer's opponents within the GOP have some ammunition here. But 
does that mean that there was any knowledge by Mr. Schaefer we don't of know. what indictment might be coming? We don't know. But we do know that Scott Johnson, uh, a former Cobb County Republican chairman, has mm-hmm. called for Beck to step down. Schaefer hasn't at this juncture saying that he would wait on the, on the governor to make a decision on that, uh, about how that should be handled and follow the governor's lead. So you would think Scott Johnson is going to use that to his advantage. And to build off of what Theron said, to circle back to him, uh, Theron said that if the goods are on him that he committed this crime, that Beck committed this crime, and he still ran for insurance commissioner, which will bring heightened attention to him, he is going to be a chapter in my newest book, Profiles and Stupidity. So Democratic Party of Georgia, probably two, four, six years ago, was in a very similar situation what we see the Republicans in right now. You know, you had a convention where you had uh, ideals and, and principles of one candidate that was totally against another. You know, we had our share of people who were indicted and people who basically were alleged of committing corruption. And so it, it, it really prohibited the Democrats from really having a sound footing. Look at what we're talking about right now in 2019. It's shifting. We have a stable Democratic Party of Georgia. I'm going to knock on wood because I hope it stays that way for a while. And we have a Republican Party in Georgia right now at a time where you're going to have their U.S. senator on the ballot next year. And you see another U.S. senator, Johnny Isaacson, who is not as supportive of this president. And then you have an indicted constitutional Republican officer. I just want for our listeners to realize that the, the tide has shifted in Georgia where you've had this Republican Party that has been dominant for so many decades having a lot of the same problems that Democrats had just a little less than like three or four years ago. I don't mean to go all Greek morality tale here, but the common denominator between where the Republicans are now and the Democrats back some years ago was they were in power. Mm. And that is something that we keep learning over and over again. Power has an interesting effect on people. And it opens up doors, too, for craft <laughs> in a way that you don't when you're not in power. So I think some people find that a little too tempting. Not to say that the Republicans in Georgia haven't governed the state well. Most, I mean, I think it's been an ethically run state government under, under Republicans by and large. Real quickly here, for listeners of the podcast, this is a little deep dive into history here. We were talking about David Schaefer a moment ago and Jim Beck, the insurance commissioner who now faces indictment. A couple of years ago, David Schaefer, as a senator, chaired the Regulated Industries Committee. That committee was taking up a bill to legalize Sunday alcohol sales in Georgia. This was years before it actually passed, but there were lots of attempts. This was one of them. Schaefer had the bill in front of the committee. The rumor was he was going to, despite his own reservations about Sunday alcohol sales, Kind of let it go on to the full Senate. Jim Beck, as head of the Christian Coalition, appeared before the committee, looked directly at David Schaefer. I was sitting between the two of them against a wall in that small hearing room. Beck looked at Schaefer and basically said, you let this through and we are coming for you. Those weren't his words. But it was, we are the Christian Coalition, we vote, and you let this bill out at your peril. David Schaefer sent it into the dustbin right on the spot. And it's interesting because the two have been political allies since, at least in terms of contributions. 
So there's a lot of history going back, and Jim Beck's influence at the Capitol extends way before his time as insurance commissioner. There was a time when the Christian Coalition was a major voice, perhaps a decisive voice within Republican Party politics. Of course, the Georgia Christian Coalition is now defunct. It was done in by a series of idiotic leaders, including <laughs> maybe Mr. Beck. We'll, we'll, we'll let times hell. It just did a lot of boneheaded things and didn't run it very well. And it was supplanted by Faith and Freedom, Ralph Reed's organization, which I would say is influential, but doesn't have the juice that the Christian Coalition had back in the day. If you look, like they were major opponents of the cultivation of marijuana for the uh, cannabis oil that passed this year. And they were, they were railroaded. Uh, they did lose the Sunday sales. They did lose on the brunch bill. So they've had a series of of losses, and eventually they're going to lose on gambling. It's not they have they have held their ground, but eventually that's going to fold. Oh man, let's mark that down. Like now, Brian Robinson I've has come out this, and right? said that uh, that they're going to lose. But but the thing that you just really displayed, um, Dennis. It is not unheard of that legislators, you know, speak to each other that way. Mm-hmm. And and then what you do, and, it's, and it happens on the Democratic side, too, let me say this, sure. is that you start tracking the money. You start tracking the support. And I just want to echo my point earlier. I just think that at a time where, where we saw Governor Deal, who had the, the unique ability to keep his party together, and this is no knock on Governor Kemp, but I think what you just talked about power is that when you have it for so long and you know that the wave is coming. I mean, Brian knows that we are a purple state now. And I just Purpling. think. Purpling. <laughs> Purpling. Um, it, it's just really interesting where we are. So I just, we're going we're to go back to this podcast probably two years from now and remember uh, us having this conversation. All of this is happening, as Brian mentioned, as the Republicans are getting ready to hold their convention. They will be voting on a new party chair. The Republicans going into this convention, Brian, faced some headwinds, including the indictment of Insurance Commissioner Jim Beck. They also have Gwinnett County Commission Chair Charlotte Nash, who has said, I'm done. The Gwinnett DA, Danny Porter, longtime big Republican vote-getter, has said he might even run as a Democrat next time around. And there's the possible backlash on abortion. So is the GOP facing headwinds that it doesn't really know how to address right now? Is it having to figure things out on the fly? Let me say with, with Charlotte Nash, and we've talked about Gwinnett a lot on this podcast, and I know we have a lot of great uh, Gwinnett listeners. And in her reelect in uh, 2016, she had a big war chest. She ran against a Democrat with no name and no money, and she got 51% of the vote. And so you can look at that. Theron is a political guy, Democrats are going to see those numbers and go, this is a flippable, easily flippable district. It was going to be an uphill climb for Charlotte Nash, not because she hasn't done a great job, but because we're so partisan, we're so tribal, and the and the Gwinnett electorate has flipped and is now majority. Democrat Stacey Abrams won by large margins there. Rob Woodall was saved in his congressional race by the Forsyth County portion of it, which is heavily Republican. So it's tough. So Denny Porter, right? Of course he's thinking about it. I mean, because who cares what party the DA is, right? Mm -hmm. So I think one thing you might see Gwinnett leaders do in the General Assembly is try to get that position changed to nonpartisan. Now, the parties oppose it because they get money from the registration when they sign up. So they want it to be partisan. 
it's probably best for Gwinnett and many other counties to have those positions, including sheriffs, become nonpartisan. And there's no reason for our law enforcement community, whether the prosecutors or the people who put you in jail, to be Republican or Democrat. No but, reason. But as anyone who's watched a campaign for mayor of Atlanta or some recent campaigns for state Supreme Court can tell you those are nonpartisan races, but there's the everybody knows there's a Democrat, everybody knows there's a Republican, no, and, and I, those I, parties get involved. And, and Theron, I think, will agree with me on this. Look at what happened in the last cycle, right? In the state court of appeals race, open seat. There was a known Democrat, Ken Hodges, who ran for AG as attorney, attorney general as a Democrat against a known Republican, Ken Shigley. And Hodges won 75-25. Nobody can tell me this is a 75-25 Democrat state. Nobody thinks that. Theron doesn't think that. So those partisan labels and those races, in that case proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that stuff doesn't really matter. You had African-American judges, Leah Ward Sears, uh, Justice Benham, who's retiring who are Democrats and known Democrats who won re-election time and time again. So we do look past partisanship on some of those races already. So Charlotte Nash, I agree with um, um, Brian that Chairwoman Nash uh, got to know her pretty intimately during this martyr referendum. Uh, when I tell you this woman really put it all in line, I mean, she took a lot of criticism, she took a lot of heat, but I think she evolved over the years. So now you're right. It's a it's a clearly a blue Democratic County. Now let's get to D.A. Porter. Again, I want us to always go back and let's bookmark this podcast. Dennis, you remember this. When when Democrats started to really lose our power in, in, in Georgia, yes, it was the defeat of Roy Barnes in 2002. But let's also talk about what happened in 2002 and 2004. You had Democrats getting together in a room and all of a sudden they start switching parties. Yep. And it, and it wasn't started in the Senate, started in the Senate. I think we had upwards to four senators who just said, hey, we're going to switch parties. You now have a very, very influential district attorney, a Republican who was ran on the Republican ballot, who has been the person that helps get out Republican voters in the county, who is looking at the possibility of running on the Democratic ticket at a time when he's already um, garnered two Democratic opponents for his seat. Now, what Brian's done, and then this is why he get paid the big bucks, and he's a tremendous spin or artist, he is doing what I would be doing <laughs> if I was in his position. I would say, hey, the Democrats are in power at the state legislature. Why don't we go change the law? Why don't we go change state law and make this position um, you know, nonpartisan because I see one of my Democrats about to go down. I would probably suggest the same thing he was doing, so I'm not mad at him for doing that. <laughs> But, I appreciate but your the tolerance. His, but the historical aspect of this, and the reason I wanted to remind our listeners is that we had these four state senators, and it was House members who started switching. All it takes is one. Gwinnett County is like our Fulton County and DeKalb County. Mm -hmm. To now have it blue, to now have a chairwoman not running for office again, for whatever reason, to have a DA flirting with the idea, who both of them supported MARTA and got tremendous probably pushback on it because they're forward-thinking and they're progressive, again— I just think that Republicans right now in this state have got to be looking at all of this and saying, oh, my God, guys, Brian Robinson has been telling us for four <laughs> years that if we don't diversify our party and if we don't particularly diversify our party in the metro areas, look at what can happen to us. You're, I, I have been saying that. As Republicans get together, though, Brian, are they able to navigate all of this at a time when they're also seeing 
Some criticism of Senator David Perdue over the Hurricane Michael funding and whether he could deliver all of what Georgia needs. And it was just reported that he was ranked third in the Senate for missed roll call votes behind two Democrats who are running for president. The Hurricane Michael issue is one where he and Johnny Addison have been out front on it, bounding their fists on the table, fighting to get Georgia what they need. Just this week, they worked with HUD Secretary mm-hmm. Benjamin uh, Ben Carson to get $35 million, $35 million. Sent, yep. sent down here, which is a big, big step for us. That's great. I know Austin Scott down from Middle and South Georgia has been pushing hard. Sanford Bishop's been pushing hard. Everybody has. And eventually we're going to get it done. It's, it's too late. But I don't think anybody blames David Perdue for this. I, and if they do, they're wrong. I mean, the people who stopped the bill from going forward were the Senate Democrats who were more concerned about Puerto Rico than they were about Georgia and other southern states. That is just how it is. Democrats stopped this from going forward. The House offered a bill, though, which the yes. Senate has refused to take up. Mm-hmm. Does it does exactly what the Republicans are asking. And not to jump in here, but David Perdue has been since day zero the number one supporter of President Donald Trump. The fact that he— certainly one of them. Yeah, one of them. I think I would rank him number one in the Senate. Sorry. The inability for him to deliver is, is, to me, something that I know that his campaign team is looking at. Now, what I think they're doing, Dennis, and and this is where Republicans get really smart— I do think that the Georgian, Georgians need this relief, all right? So I'm not going to play partisan politics with this. We need the release. I am very interested in the delay and how it's taking so long to, to happen, and I do believe Democrats have offered up a House bill, which you pointed out, that the Senate refuses to take up. I believe that this will get done, and I think it will actually get done in enough time for David Perdue to own it. And in an election in the year politics, which he'll be on the ballot next year, it's probably not a bad thing that this kind of continues to draw out for him, but it's really bad for these Georgians who need this relief right now. Coming back to Brian's point here about districts that might flip, Brian, are Republicans, as they map their strategy out at their convention, looking at the traditional tension of a party which has become a big tent of divergent constituencies and trying to keep that coalition together, the suburban Republicans, which they need so much, versus rural or more conservative, and in this case, religious-based conservatives. We saw this on every major issue that came up in the General Assembly Mm -hmm. in, in 2019. And so the question becomes for the two Republican caucuses in the House and Senate, where the strong majority of representatives and senators are from strong Republican districts. Do we go and do stuff for those folks and their principles and their worldview, even though it puts our suburban members at risk? Or do we govern just for suburban members? Well, we so got that was a, the question. We got an answer with the abortion bill, didn't we? But that wasn't the only issue. That, yeah, that was one where the cons, you know, the conservative wing definitely won out. But And in fact, they brought the moderate district reps along with them. And so for some of these suburban districts in in metro Atlanta where Democrats, particularly highly educated districts, Democrats are getting a a foothold, won a lot of seats last time, those suburban seats are what give Republicans their majority. If you take away those suburban seats, the Democrats have a majority. And so it is a precarious balance that we must strike. And so what you're seeing in reality is the decision that there are no swing voters. The strategy is 
based on the idea that there are no swing voters, that it's just base turnout. And so the abortion bill is an example of energizing your base. Now, granted, the flip side is you energize Theron's base, too. Like they, mm-hmm. are, they are wound up. And is you, this a winning strategy for 2020, though, as the Republicans try to map it out and set their direction? Here's the thinking on it, Dennis. The idea is no one is going into the ballot box in November of 2020 voting on the heartbeat bill. Everyone is going in to vote for Donald Trump because they love him or vote for Donald Trump because they're scared of the Democrat or for the Democrat or against Donald Trump. And everything's going to be driven by the presidential race. And so you're going to go in there and vote for Trump. You're going to vote for David Perdue, and you're going to vote for your Republican representative. If you go in there and vote for the Democratic candidate, you're going to vote against David Perdue and, and for the Democratic candidate for state house and state senate. It is not by the votes that are taken at the General Assembly. That's, that's the theory. Two quick things. Brian just really did an excellent job of really, again, giving us a, a snapshot of where the Republicans are right now. And, I, and, I, and, and not to you know um, put words in his mouth, but what I'm seeing, Dennis, is what you just said, is they have a they, they're at a crossroads because you got to put forth bills like the heartbeat bill, which myself and others, Democrats and Republicans oppose. But there are a large majority of Republican voters. And quite frankly, honestly, I'm hearing this more and more. Um, some Democratic voters who support it, they don't like the six week, but they do want to try to make abortions rare and safe. Uh, and they don't want, you know, they don't want these clinics doing some of the things that we know that has happened. But the, the, the problem is, is that the moderate Republicans who don't like Donald Trump, who live in these districts that he's talking about, and Brian hears some of these people all the time, you're losing those folks all the time. And so the crossroads that the Republicans are at right now is, again, do we do we give more red meat to our base or do we try to move to the middle? And here's the thing, little, little advice to the governor's staff. He should talk about transit and infrastructure uh, and dollars that have been committed for the state to really continue to grow this region. He should talk about how he is wanting to move Medicaid waivers forward. And he should also talk about job creation and other things. I know he wants to focus on small business. That will kind of, you know, sort of help dilute a little bit the strong messages coming from the left and just making Georgia like Alabama, but not as bad as Alabama, be on the national stage with this heartbeat bill. The second thing is, I do think that the heartbeat bill, which I believe, and Brian has told us this, that it while it, provi- it provides a legal path to Roe v. Wade, if it continues to drag on in the courts, if we see a lot of local, state, federal courts sort of going back and forth, if it gets appealed, and it's a prevalent conversation that Democrats and Republicans are having in Georgia around election time in 2020, I do believe that will be some of the reason why people go to vote as well. Real quickly, Brian, is it possible that Governor Kemp is counting on an abortion bill from another state being the one to go through that long and expensive battle that lands in the Supreme Court? Because Georgia's bill, if it becomes the test case, is going to cost the state a whole bunch of money. I don't think that's part of the strategy, and I think that the governor is willing to put up the money if he if it becomes the vehicle that goes through the federal courts. That's a long trip from here to the Supreme Court, unless the Supreme Court for some reason tries to step in and skip the process and bring it up, which perhaps could happen, but I can't imagine those justices want to do that. He has the courage of his convictions on this, and he has shown he's willing to take the bullets, he's willing to stand by it, and he's willing to fight. Is the Georgia bill— Whether you like it or not. 
Is it possible that the pro-life forces may have overplayed their hand in one sense, and, and Pat Robertson even alluded to this this week, is that they passed bills that were so restrictive that even a majority of this Supreme Court might say it's unconstitutional. Well, even then, there's a chance of them further prescribing mm-hmm. what your inherent right is. There's still that chance. And I think what pro-life forces, and there's a split amongst pro-life forces. I mean, there is the the section who want to see a decline in the number of abortions in America, and they are willing to take incremental steps to get there. And then you have more of the Georgia right to life group who will be against anything that's not a, that a, a complete ban. They are against in- incremental progress, and it, it's got to be a complete ban. So, so there's a, a bit of a split there, but I think the majority of pro-life people are happy with an incremental change that reduces the number of abortions. Darren, is it possible, on the other hand, that folks, say, in the entertainment industry who are threatening boycotts and in some instances say we are stopping filming in Georgia, have they overplayed their hand at least at the moment since it's very likely that the bill would be enjoined while the court fight takes place. So it's not going to take effect for a while anyway. The possibility of losing the movie industry in Georgia at a time where Governor Dill and Mayor Reed and others, the Chambers of Commerce, and so many people put so much time and effort with these tax credits and these incentives to bring these movies and these movie companies to the state, I would hate to see that go away. But I do think that they had to stand up And I think they did it in a robust way. But ultimately, I hope that we can work it out. And we will be back with more of The Political Breakfast. Stay right here. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. And we are back with The Political Breakfast. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Dennis O'Hare with Democratic strategist Theron Johnson and Republican strategist Brian Robinson. Theron, as the Democratic strategist in the room, we've got a parade of Democratic candidates moving through Georgia, the most recent ones, Bernie Sanders and Kirsten Gillibrand. The state party and a lot of the big-name Democrats around, with just a couple of exceptions, have stayed very quiet, especially since the entrance into the race of former Vice President Joe Biden. Is there any sense that you're getting that there's any one of these 23-plus people who's favored by the leaders here? If you talk to some of the insiders and some of the elected officials here, Dennis, you see former Vice President Joe Biden kind of having an edge with them. But then there are other Democrats like myself who... Quite frankly, at this stage, we don't know who we want to support. I can tell you what's really happening, Dennis, is that with all of these presidential candidates coming to Georgia, I am seeing my credit card statement and my check writing to be (laughs) at an all-time high um, because you just want to be supportive of whoever that person, he or she, who may win. And so what Georgia is becoming now is not only a a battleground state for presidential elections, but we are becoming a state where presidential Democratic candidates can come and raise a lot of money as well. On that point, Democratic strategist Antoine Seawright recently said that whoever wins the South Carolina primary, which happens before Georgia, Mm -hmm. will likely win the Democratic nomination for president because of the African-American vote in South Carolina and how influential that will be with other voters, other Democratic voters around the country. I agree with that to a certain extent. You remember I talked about when we first started this podcast and when Brian was sort of deliberating on whether or not he wanted to support then-candidate 
uh, Donald Trump for president. <laughs> and I was saying that I believe that Hillary Clinton, who was our nominee, was going to get the nomination because of the Southern Wall. The first stop of the wall, the first brick of the wall, is South Carolina. But also, you can't count out Nevada. At a time when you got Kamala Harris in there, who I believe has great relationships with the West Coast, but then early voting starts in California in, in that time, around that time frame. What you're going to see different this time in Democratic politics is, yes, if you win South Carolina, and you, you, you're perceivably the candidate of choice amongst African Americans. But you still got these big states like California. You got these big states like Texas. And that's where you have to really talk about a Beto and others. And so I think that what's happening in Georgia, and Cory Booker is on his way back here. Just got a call that Kamala Harris is coming. Uh, Uncle Joe will be here pretty soon. And so what you're going to see, I think, and I'm going to call this out before, I think you're going to see a lot of our elected officials go with a, one candidate, presumably Vice President Biden. But I think you're going to see the younger, more progressive wing in our party go with some of the other candidates. So, Brian, here's where a Republican comes in, specifically Brad Raffensperger and probably Governor Kemp, too, because they got to set the date for Georgia's primary elections in both parties, but mm-hmm. the Democratic presidential primary is the marquee matchup. Will there be any political calculus for them watching the Democrats, or are they going to just be worried about, will Georgia's new voting machines be ready? And that might determine when our primary date is. When Governor Kemp was Secretary of State, he took a tremendous interest in this, and he was the brains behind the SEC primary of southeastern states and kind of gave the regional bloc some power in the 2016 cycle. You know, one thing, Republicans are less concerned this time because there's not going to be a Republican primary mm-hmm. for president. You know, the president, I mean, there's, I mean, but they're going to be watching. Sure. I mean, I don't know strategically that there's something that we can do on our side to sabotage Democrats by when we set the <laughs> presidential primary. If there was, there was, I'm sure we would consider it and, and uh, spin it really effectively. And I'd be all for that. I mean, I'll, and quite quite frankly, uh, that's, that's politics. I don't think that there's anything there that's that we can do that, I, that I'm aware of. Now, look, we are bringing up something that goes back to something we discussed earlier about all these problems that Republicans face. Look. David Perdue has no primary opponent. He's able to stockpile money every cent for the general election and build up goodwill and having nobody tear him down and not having to go and attack fellow Republicans. Democrats, however, are going to have a primary field. They're going to spend a lot of money attacking each other, raising up each other's negatives. It's going to happen in the presidential race as well, an overly crowded primary where people like Kirsten Gillibrand coming down here to talk about Georgia state policy. Georgians don't like that, right? We don't need outsiders, particularly New Yorkers and Californians, come to tell us what kind of laws we should pass, regardless of how you stand on the heartbeat bill, which is what she's here to talk about. So what you're going to see is folks like Gillibrand and Amy Klobuchar and a few others who aren't getting any traction taking ever more extreme stands just to stand out in a Democratic Party that is ever more liberal, ever more extreme, particularly in the primary. And before Theron corrects me, my party is extreme in the primary too. But the Democrat primary is going to be one where a leftward lurch is going to be good for you if you're trying to get attention. But if they're energized and carry that over into the general election here in Georgia, does that put Georgia in play? I made a bold call, and CEO Michael Thurman also did this, and you saw Galloway, Jim Galloway from the Atlanta Journal of Constitution write about it. I believe we need a moderate approach, and more importantly, a moderate Democrat to win a general election in Georgia. If we elect 
the extreme left candidate during the Democratic primary to go up against Senator Perdue, Georgia, to me, will still be a state that's on the pathway, the map towards 270. But if we can have a more moderate person who can raise the money, who can actually give uh, David Perdue a serious challenge and cannot be pegged and, and sort of pushed with this narrative of being a, a out-of-touch, socialist, left-wing liberal, therein lies our strategy. And, and, and it needs to be someone that is is younger, someone who's got a story to tell, a great narrative, and someone that can, can raise the money. It, and, and I think, to, to answer your question, if we can produce that person to be on the ticket in 2020, and whoever the nominee for president is going to be, and I, and I hope that the, the nominee for president has that same type of model that I just explained, then that's how we win back the presidency, and that's how we win back Georgia. If the Democrats somehow beat Trump in Georgia, the pathway to Trump's re-election is very, very narrow. Before we go, let's look back at the career of the late Fulton County Commissioner Emma Darnell. A lot of folks in Fulton County remember her as a long-serving commissioner who was very feisty, often quite controversial. But Emma Darnell Theron was a pioneer. Her career goes way back before her long time on the Fulton County Commission. She served all the way back in the administration of Atlanta Mayor Sam Massell in the 70s, managing contracts, and her work there was part of opening City Hall to minority participation, and it could be argued eventually, African-American leadership at City Hall. Absolutely. I mean, the the story's been told to me by many leaders that said that when Maynard Jackson became mayor, Emma Darnell was there already because she was working for former mayor Sam Massell. Maynard Jackson requested that Emma Darnell lead the minority participation program in Atlanta that now is revered not just locally, not just nationally, but all around the world. It prevented, it provided opportunity to give minority companies, not just African-Americans, but women-owned companies, an opportunity to compete with the big prime companies. And then... But it says something about all of that time was that eventually it was Maynard Jackson who fired her from city government in a dispute over treatment of office staff and some disagreements with the mayor himself. These were two very strong personalities. Absolutely. And Commissioner Darnell would talk to people that she trusted privately about that exchange between her and former uh, Mayor Maynard Jackson. And so then let's talk about what she did. She went and she joined the, the county commission. And I would tell you that there's no other elected official in our state that woke up every morning the way that Emma Darnell did to really focus on seniors. Seniors. I mean, she, at the commission meetings, which you attended, Dennis, um, I mean, she was in the community, of the community. She fought for all seniors in Fulton County. And then I'm going to tell you this, as someone who had to actually go and meet with her, and I would take clients in, or or, or I would brief my clients, and I'm saying, look, when we go meet with Commissioner Darnell, this is an educated lawyer uh, who really knows her stuff. She's done her research you know, speak less than you usually uh, do in past meetings and be very precise about it. And so she's going to be truly, truly missed. I'm going to personally miss her as a person who have read about her, who had a chance to really get to know her. And one of my last conversations with her, Dennis, she was talking about income inequality Mm -hmm. uh, in our in our county, in our in our region. And Brian, I know you didn't know Commissioner Darnell well at all, but it was interesting as somebody who has watched the dynamics of Fulton County as much as you have, I stumbled on her last commission meeting watching television, and 
one of the things she was bringing up was basically an inverse. She took the North Fulton argument about how they put in more in money than they get back in services, and she flipped it on its head because the debate was about some police services for some of those North Fulton cities, and she was saying, what about us? She took that North Fulton County argument and very astutely turned it on its head in her last commission meeting. That was the kind of force that Emma Darnell was. Well, I would say that these days, the cityhood movement has also taken over her constituencies as well there uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in South, in, Fulton. In South Fulton. Sure. But whatever her political viewpoints may have been, she has served her county for decades upon decades, a life well lived. May she rest in peace. And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist, public affairs and government consultant, and former National Southern Regional Director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former Deputy Chief of Staff to former Governor Nathan Deal. Thanks so much to you both. Thank you so much, Dennis. Have a great weekend. And if you like this show, subscribe. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate us. That's a good way to make sure other people can find us. And we'll be back in your feed and in your head soon with more nourishing political conversation. Be sure to join us. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE.